This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, let me pray and let's uh, take a look at this together. Father, we thank you this morning for your incredible grace that you have given to us in union with Jesus Christ. This is the greatest gift we could experience to be united to Jesus by faith and to have all of the graces that you offer through Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would deepen our understanding of our union with Christ, deepen our experience of living in union with Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep this reality more at the forefront of our hearts and our lives and our minds so that we know what it truly is to experience your saving grace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that you would uh, teach us this more and more. We need your help today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let me say a brief refresher of last week to get us back to where we uh, left off. Last week we talked about how central this idea of union with Christ is, and uh, perhaps I shouldn't say idea, but this reality of union with Christ, how central it is to the Christian faith. Union with Christ forms the foundation of all other saving graces. Everything that comes to us in the salvation of God in Christ uh, happens by virtue of our union with Christ. So union with Christ is, is what ties all the saving graces together. So if we don't know the reality of union with Christ, then we don't know any of the good graces of God that he has given us in salvation. And uh, theologians throughout the centuries have spoken of how central union with Christ is to the faith. You don't have to read Paul very long to see that everything he gives praise to God for in his saving work, uh, he does it in Christ. So Paul is very fond of these phrases, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And he, uh, he repeats this over and over again, sometimes more than you would expect him to, in order to drive home the point that our union with Jesus Christ is the basis and... Uh, the lifeblood of our salvation. Last week, I talked about what it means to be in Christ. Union with Christ means that we are in Christ as believers. And we looked at a number of passages that highlighted this reality. The upshot of this is that whatever is true of Jesus Christ is true of us. This is, this is shockingly amazing. Whatever is true of Jesus Christ is true of believers who are in Christ. So, if Jesus dies his death to sin, then if we are in Christ, we die to sin. If Jesus rises from the dead, then if we are in Christ by faith, united to Jesus by faith, then we also rise from the dead. If Jesus Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father and is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, then if we are in Christ by faith, 
then we too are seated at the right hand of the Father. And that makes sense of some of the things that Paul says, doesn't it? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even now because we are in Christ. If Jesus Christ has an eternal inheritance because he is the Son of God, wonder of wonders, if we are in Christ by faith, then we have an inheritance. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. This is what enables Paul to be able to say things like that. We are joint heirs with Christ because we are united to him by faith. So again, whatever is true of Jesus becomes true for us because we are in Christ in all things. And we talked last week about a number of implications of that reality of our union with Christ. This is why we are dead to sin. Sin is not our master anymore because we have died with Christ. This is why we have power for holiness in our lives because we are united to Jesus in his resurrection. As Paul prays in Ephesians 1, his resurrection power is at work in us. This is why we have hope for resurrection ourselves eternal resurrection resurrection bodies because if we are in Jesus Christ well if he is raised from the dead then we too will be raised from the dead this is why we have hope of never being separated from the love of God we we cannot be separated from the love of God because we are in Christ Jesus there's good hope of this this is why we have peace with God now because of our confidence of his grace in Christ. Jesus did take on our sins on the cross, but we have taken on his righteousness and therefore we have confidence in his grace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we are in union with him. As I spoke about a moment ago, we have hope of an eternal of an eternal inheritance which will never perish, spoil, or fade. Because if we are in Christ, and Christ is the Son who receives the inheritance of His Father, then we are sons who receive the inheritance of our Father by virtue of being united to Christ by faith. And I'll say uh, lastly again that uh, one of the things I, we struggle with as human beings is uh, seeking an identity with others. What will earn us the f uh, favor with others? What will earn us favor with God? And it is union with Christ that answers that longing that sometimes we pursue in hurtful ways and negative ways and sinful ways. If we are in Christ... And everything that is true for Jesus Christ becomes true for us because we are in him. Then we need not have anxiety over being accepted. Because in Christ we are eternally accepted before the Father. We don't need to clamor for the approval of others. We don't need to labor even for the approval of God. If we are in Christ, if we are joined to Jesus, we have the full approval of God. And I, I've said this a lot, but I, I always like to think of the baptism of Jesus in that regard as 
as the Father speaks from heaven at the baptism of Jesus and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, that is what God says to us. If we are in Christ by faith joined to Jesus, we are children of God then, sons of God, not just with the inheritance of sons of God, but with a father who says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I always note again that the father said that to Jesus before he entered into his public ministry. Jesus did not enter into his public ministry in order to earn the favor of his father. He entered into his public ministry out of the overflow of knowing that he was secure in the love of his father. And so our union with Christ does this for us. We don't have to struggle with our identity in order to gain the acceptance of God. And we don't have to go with anxiety uh, on how others accept us. We can trust in our identity, in our union with Christ, and our acceptance before the Father. And we said last week, and I highlight this one last thing here before we turn our attention to another point here. But you can see here that if, we, if union with Christ is the basis of everything that God does in our, in our salvation, you can see then how both justification by grace alone through faith alone and transformation into sanctification can both be true at the same time when we think about union with Christ. If Paul says we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not by works of any kind. Some people were saying to him, well, if that's the case, should we just go on sinning that grace may abound? And Paul says, absolutely not. And it's our union with Christ that drives this for him. Remember the argument he made in Romans 6. Our union with Christ provides this reality that our salvation is fully grounded in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone and not ours. We hide in Christ and his righteousness becomes ours so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We can be secure in that. But it's also by virtue of our being joined to Jesus that we have died to sin and risen from the dead in new lives in Christ. Power to live in holiness new life in him, alive to God in Jesus Christ. So you see, it's union with Christ that makes both of these truths true at the same time. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, not by works, not even the slightest bit of works. We're saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. But how does that not lead to a life of just uh, living in sin because I'm righteous in Christ? It's because anyone who is joined to Jesus by faith is fully justified by the righteousness of Christ and his grace alone. But they are also dead to sin and alive to God in him. So that someone who is truly saved by faith cannot and will not go on living a life of sin. It's not a means of earning favor with God. It's simply a means of being joined to Jesus in his death and resurrection so that our lives are now uh, new in him. So those are some of the implications we talked about of being in Christ, 
Now this morning what I want to do, try to make this very simple, is to say when we talk about union with Christ, we're not simply saying that we are in Christ. What we are also saying based on Scripture is that Christ is in us. And we need to think about both of these realities in our union with Christ. Let me show you a few passages from the New Testament real quickly that highlight this truth. Not only are we in Christ and have all of the benefits of that, but the union with Christ means that Christ is also in us. Let me start in the Gospel of John. And notice in the Gospel of John, the disciples begin to become concerned because Jesus is telling them that he's about to go away from them you remember They're, they've placed their hopes in him they want to follow him wherever he goes they've seen that when they follow him he does amazing things he cares for them but now he's telling them he's going to go away and you can see how this would be concerning for them and how does Jesus comfort them as he's telling them he's going away well what he says to them in reality is that if I do not go away then you cannot have any part with me. In fact, it's good for you that I do go away because if I do go away, then I will send the promise of my Father who is the Spirit. And Jesus is communicating in the Gospel of John that not only is he sending the Spirit, but when he sends the gift of the Spirit to us from the Father, then it is through the Spirit that he himself is coming to be with us and to be in us and to dwell in us. Look at John chapter 14 if you have your Bibles open. John chapter 14. I'll begin in verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is at least so far saying that when I go away, the Spirit will be in you. But notice what he says next. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now this is a mystery in some ways. It's hard to understand. It's probably not comprehensible fully. Uh, but, you know, if, if we could comprehend all that God is and all that he does for us, then uh, we would be God ourselves, wouldn't we? Uh, if there's not some mystery to the reality and the truth of Scripture for us, then God is not God and we are not finite. But we don't know exactly all the mystery that this entails but we we do see Jesus saying that he's going to send the spirit to be in us and in this way he will not leave us as orphans and he will come to us he himself will come to us it seems by the spirit to be in us and then he goes on to say in verse 19 yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you will see me because I live you also will live you can hear the sort of union with Christ thinking that's even present in the language of Jesus here. 
Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So notice both aspects of the union with Christ there. I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. So both parts are present. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And even now, during this time when Jesus is away in one sense, before his second coming, he comes to be in us by the Spirit. He does not leave us as orphans. If you flip over to John 17, where Jesus prays his priestly prayer here, fascinating prayer. It's the longest prayer of Jesus that we have in the Bible. And this prayer, I think, gets at the heart of Jesus because as he's about to go to the cross and he's about to leave his people, you can see what's on his mind and heart as he prays. His sort of last wish, you might say, his last will and testament. What's on his mind before his father as he prays? And look down at verse 20, John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's all believers that come later, including us. He's praying for us here. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's a little bit of that being in Christ as he is in the Father. Then verse 22 says, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Now this again, just incredible things that Jesus is praying here. Obviously, one of the things he's praying is that Christians will be one. But the basis of the oneness of Christians is this fact that Jesus is in his Father and he, and he draws believers to be in him and in his Father. But not just that, as verse 23 says, I in them and you in me. So it works both ways. We are in Christ as he, and he is in his Father and Christ is in us, and the Father is in Christ. So again, um, there's some mystery about how this works exactly. But Jesus is making an incredible claim that one of the results of his work, of his saving work for us, is that he is in us, makes his home in us, and his Father is in us in him so as we go into the world and live our christian lives we know that christ is in us and that is the means of christians living in love and unity with each other and that is also the means of a watching world seeing that god is true and that he loved the world by sending his son this is how the world will see God. This is the way John puts it in 1 John 4, 12. 
the way the world will see God is how Christians are one and how they love one another. But they don't do that unless Christ is in them. And it is a shocking statement that Jesus makes there at the end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And the, the love that the Father has for the Son is infinite. And Jesus is saying that the Father has loved us even as he's loved Jesus. And one of the ways he has done that is that he has come to be in us by the Spirit. You know, when Paul says in Romans 5 that we have hope because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Spirit that he has given us. Uh, perhaps these ideas coalesce together. God has poured his infinite love into our hearts by his Spirit. And that's the way, by the giving of the Spirit, that God pours his love into us is that Christ comes to uh, not just the Spirit, but in some way Christ comes to be in us through the Spirit that he has given. Now let's look at what Paul says about this issue of not only our being in Christ, but Christ being in us. Look at Romans chapter 8. It's fascinating how even if the language is different sometimes, we see that the things that Paul teaches are the same things that Jesus teaches us. You know, there, there are some theologians out there that try to drive a wedge between the two. You know, Paul was the inventor of Christianity, and he gave us a different teaching and a different gospel than what Jesus gave us. And the more you dig and dig and dig, the more you realize that that isn't true. Paul's gospel is the same as the, as the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes the terms and the language is different. But the concepts are identical. Uh, John Piper's book, What Jesus Demands from the World, is partly meant to accomplish this purpose. Uh, he seeks in that book to talk very little about Paul at all. But part of his goal is to expose the message of Jesus in such a way that it's clear that the ideas are, are really ideas that Paul borrowed from Jesus, right? Uh, and that he's passing along to us and this is one of those things we just we just heard that Jesus teaches very clearly that he comes to be in us through the spirit and Paul teaches the same thing Romans chapter 8 look at verses 9 and 10 Paul says you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you so there Paul agrees with Jesus that the Spirit dwells in Christians. In Christians. Then he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So think about what Paul's saying here. There's no such thing as, as a Christian who does not have the Spirit. There's not this kind of you, you become saved and then sometime later you have a second blessing where you receive the Spirit for the first time. No, Everyone who is a Christian who is in Christ also has the Spirit of God, or as Paul puts it here at the end of verse 9, the Spirit of Christ. So he calls the Spirit the Spirit of God at the beginning of verse 9. He calls him the Spirit of Christ at the end of verse 9. And everyone who is a Christian has the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You see that? 
If you don't have the spirit, you don't belong to him. It's as simple as that. Now look at verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you. Now, wait a minute, Paul. I thought you said it was the spirit of God or the spirit of Christ who was in us. But now in verse 10, he says, but if Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Notice he's still talking about the same thing, isn't he? He's gone from saying the spirit of God is in us to saying the spirit of Christ is in us. Now to saying if Christ is in you. So, again, you see what Paul is assuming is that when the spirit of Christ is in us, in some way that means Christ is in us. The same thing Jesus was saying. I send you the spirit and thereby I don't leave you as orphans, but I come to be in you, to dwell in you, to make my home with you. Same thing here. Paul thinks that if the spirit of Christ is in us, then Christ is in us. Now look with me at Colossians chapter 1, if you would. A couple more of these passages. I want to show you this, and then I want to draw out some implications of this reality of Christ being in us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. Colossians 1, 25, Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So, so God has appointed Paul with a task of proclaiming a gospel that in some ways is a mystery that was hidden for ages but has now been revealed. It's not a mystery anymore uh, because Paul is proclaiming this word of God. He's making it fully known, the one that God gave him. Now, what is that message exactly? Verse 27, he says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of of this mystery, and this, listen to this part, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in some ways, Paul thinks this is central to the mystery that was hidden for ages and has now been revealed, and that is right at the forefront of what he is supposed to do in this world. His calling in this world is to proclaim how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory that have come to them. And, th and that rich glory is Christ in you. Christ in you. If Paul is willing to talk this way, then he thinks of this reality of union with Christ and Christ in his people as being central and foundational to the meaning of his gospel. Christ is in us as believers. And what Paul says right there in Colossians 1 is nearly identical to what he prays in Ephesians 3. We're going we're to read this passage in the service this morning in just a few minutes. One of my favorite prayers that Paul prays. It may be my favorite prayer that Paul prays. It's in Ephesians 3, verses 14 and following. And here you see Paul's Trinitarian mindset in his prayer. His Trinitarian mindset. 
Beginning in verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he's praying to the Father. And by the way, Paul seems to always pray to the Father, which is just what Jesus said to do, right? When you pray, say, Our Father. And that's what Paul does. I don't know if there's a prayer. There's not one of these prayers that Paul prays in the New Testament where he says, Dear Jesus. He, he prays to the Father. He prays to the Father through the Son by the Spirit is what he, is what he seems to do in his prayers. There's a reason for that uh, because the Father, he knows that the Father loves him. Uh, the Father delights to hear his prayers. And he's just following what Jesus taught him to do. So he's praying to the Father. And then verse 15 says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that was the same phrase he used in Colossians 1, remember? Uh, the riches of his glory is, is Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? According to the riches of the Father's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So he's praying to the Father that believers will be strengthened with power by the spirit, okay? But notice what he says next. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. <laughs> so you see the, the Trinitarian Christian life of Paul. We come before a father who loves us that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened by power through his spirit and in your, in your inner being. And when he does that, when he strengthens you by his spirit in your inner being, then Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. It's the same thing Jesus was saying. Same thing we saw in Romans 8. That Christ comes to dwell in us through the Spirit that God gives. And then he goes on to say that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Again, just like what we said a moment ago from Romans 5. We have hope because God has poured his love into our hearts through the spirit that he has given us. Just what Paul says right here in a different way. He, he strengthens our inner man, our inner being by the power of the spirit and thereby Christ comes to dwell in us. And as that happens, we know more and more how high and how wide and how deep and how long is the love of God in Christ. We know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's that mystery, right? We don't know how all this happens. We certainly can't comprehend the infinite beauty and riches of the glory of God and the love of God in Christ. But this is what Paul's praying for us that we'll know more than anything else. You know, it's what, just what Anthony Carter, what Tony Carter said last week in his sermon as he preached on another prayer for Paul. When you look at Paul's prayers, what is he praying for? He's not usually primarily praying for um, a good job or uh, health or financial stability. Uh, what Paul prays for are these kinds of things, which are far more rich. They're, these are greater riches. I bow my knees before the Father that according to the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power by his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith and so that you will know the infinite love of God like never before. If you have that, then those earthly things, which can be good things, okay, health and a good job and all that, those can be good gifts of God. But you could also take away those things entirely and still be in better shape than ever. And what Paul's trying to say to us is that when you are in Christ, you can know you are in better shape. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to make it happen. It's already true by virtue of being in Christ. An inheritance unlike anything you could believe. The riches of the love of God unlike anything you could believe. Reminds me of what... uh, the passage in the Old Testament, is it, is it Zechariah 3? I'm not firing on all cylinders this morning. But where he says, uh, if I don't have uh, fruit on the vine and cattle in the stall and all the things that a, a, an ancient Hebrew person would cherish as being good, uh, yet will I rejoice in God my Savior. In other words, you take away all the earthly blessings even things that we consider to be blessings from God. Take away all of that. Even if you take away all of it, yet will I rejoice in God my Savior. And that's just the way Paul lives. You could take away all my earthly accolades, all my earthly comforts. I just want this one thing, that I may know Christ. It's far better for me to depart and be with Christ. This is the riches of His glory for us. And what I'm trying to show this morning is that for us, that is Christ being in us, dwelling in us. Okay, let me, let me take you to one more text, Galatians 2. And I, my purpose in going to these various passages is just to help you feel how pervasive these thoughts are undergirding everything that Jesus and Paul think everything that Jesus and Paul love. These, uh, isn't, it, isn't it interesting how these ideas are what Jesus and Paul pray? You know, it just, it just indicates how central these things are to what they know and love. And so they should be central to what we know and love as well. And I, you know, I just can't help but notice that it's, it's not, what they know and love is not just deepening our knowledge of theological truths. <laughs> it is a life-giving experience of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the, and the Son of God dwelling in us in a way that surpasses knowledge. But look at Galatians 2. Great text here. Galatians 2 verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. So there's the I am in Christ part that we did last week. And Paul makes a lot of that. I have been crucified with Christ. That means I'm dead to sin. 
That means I'm dead to the world as well. Uh, I am crucified with Christ. But then he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You get the impression here that for Paul, every minute of his life is a life that's lived in Christ and a life of an awareness that Christ is in him. Christ is in him. So he's living by faith in the Son of God. He knows that it's the power of Christ and the presence of Christ in him that gives him all that he has. His righteousness, his holiness and sanctification, his wisdom, his experience of the love of God. It's because Christ is in him. Well, let's draw out just a few implications here. Based on the passages we've seen. If it's true that not only are we in Christ, but that Christ is in us, even now, then one thing we can say about the implication of our Christian life is that it is not simply external, but it is internal. You hear what Paul prayed there in Ephesians 3? That he would, uh, we, I pray according to the riches of his glory, he might strengthen you by the power of, your, of his spirit in your inner being. So this is a transformation from the inside out. Or it is, it is God not just existing outside of us, but God coming to be in us. And oh boy, you could think of tons of implications of that. You know, this is, this is one of the reasons why the old covenant uh, can't hold a candle to the new covenant. Is because the law of God is written on tablets of stone. It comes to our hearts from the outside. But in the new covenant, based on what Jesus has done, he writes his law in our hearts. And I can't help but think that when he, when that that truth means partly that Christ himself is in us. Because ultimately Christ is the lawgiver. And not just the lawgiver, but he himself is the law of God. He is the law of God. The law of God is love, isn't it? And, and he is love. The law of God teaches us to find Sabbath rest in the old covenant. But the new covenant expresses to us that Christ is our rest. And so what I'm suggesting is that as he writes his law in our hearts. And not just on tablets of stone on the outside. Christ himself is in us. He is the law of God for us in our hearts. But there are more, many more implications of this reality that our faith is an, is an internal heart religion, an internal transformation, and not just an external, it's not just an outward performance uh, or just something that comes to us from the outside. A second implication of what we've seen here is that 
the fact that Christ is in us has lots of implications for our living lives of holiness and turning from sin. Now, it's true what we said last week, that if we are in Christ and we are, uh, and we are joined to him in his death and resurrection, then, then that means we have power to turn from sin. And that's, the, that's what Paul makes of it in Romans 6. If, we're, if we died with him in his death, then that means our sinful flesh has been crucified with him. If we are raised to new life with him, that means we, we now are alive to God and have the power of the resurrection at work to enable our holiness. But this reality that Christ is in us also, have impl- also has implications for our holiness, doesn't it? And that's partly because Christ is in us, empowering us uh, for holiness, but he's in us, yearning with us for holiness as well. But hey, I find it fascinating what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 about this. And, and let, let's note the implications of this for, for holiness. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Here he's talking about sexual immorality. And Notice, he says here, if we are joined to Jesus, if we are in Christ, we are members of his. So if we go live lives of sin, that means we're taking members of Jesus' body and making them and, and, and offering them to sin. If you think about it in those terms, that's very shocking, isn't it? But he, he says this more in, in the other way in verses 18 through 20. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or you, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So what I take this to mean is that if we are in Christ, then when we offer our bodies to sinful things, we are offering the members of Christ to sinful things. But think about what he says there at the end. If the Spirit of God is in us, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Then what are we doing when we sin? We are bringing God into our sin. Because he is in us. That, that's a sobering thought. Whenever I plunge into sin, I'm bringing Christ with me. Because he dwells in me always. Pleading, yearning, empowering. So this fact that Christ is in us has Im, ha, is, is internal but not external. It has implications for our lives of holiness and turning from sin. Thirdly, it has implications, and I think this is what we can draw out from what Jesus said in John 14 and, and other, in the passages we looked at there. In our Christian lives, we are never alone. In our Christian lives, we are never alone. When Jesus says in his great commission, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is partly what he means. He's going to, as he says there in the great commission, especially at the end of Luke's gospel, go wait in Jerusalem until I send you the promise of the Father. And that is him saying, when, as I do that, I'm making good on the promise I made not to leave you as orphans, but to come be in you. I will never leave you or forsake you. If Christ is in us by the Spirit, then we know we are never alone. 
And, you know, in the midst of the Great Commission that he says that, that means as you go out into the world to proclaim the gospel, you're going to experience hardships aplenty. Especially as you live according to my ways and follow me on the way to the cross uh, and take the gospel to the nations, you're going to have hardships. But know always that I will never leave you nor forsake you. The reality is Christ is in us. Christ is in us. And no matter the hardship, we can rest secure in that. Um, let me say one other thing here uh, that I, it's related to that last one. Uh, and that is that the fact that Christ is in us means um, Christ is not distant, but we have communion with him always. We have access to the Father by the uh, through Christ and by the Spirit. And this is the way we were meant to live as Christians, to have communion with God, to experience the love of God, and to walk with Him daily. And, and this fact of Christ being in us makes that possibility a reality, that we can have union with Him anywhere, anytime, because He is in us. Okay? And I, I hope you heard a number of other implications. If we had time, we could go into more of them. This fact of, of Christ being in us should drive away anxiety. It should drive away discontentment. Talked about that with the passage from the Old Testament a moment ago. Uh, our longing for freedom as human beings comes to us in this way. Our longing not to be distant from God. All these kinds of human longings are answered by this reality of our union with Christ. Okay. Well, uh, let's... Uh, any, anybody have any closing questions or thoughts here before we move along to the service? Okay. Well, as always, I uh, enjoy talking about these further if things are on your mind. Uh, next week, Curtis is going to come and he is going to talk about um, what it is or, or, or ways to, to live a life of abiding in Christ, in union with Christ. He's going to flesh out for us what it looks like. I've, I've sort of given you in many ways, the theology of us being in Christ and Christ being in us and given some implications, practical implications for our lives. But Curtis next week is going to talk about how do we abide in Christ on a daily basis in our lives. And so I look forward to having him do that. I hope you'll come back next week and hear him on that. Well, let me close us in prayer. Lord, thank you for this amazing reality. I just feel right now like I don't even have the words to match the glory of the things that we've just been thinking about together the the riches of this glory where christ is in us that's and this surpasses knowledge lord we thank you for this gift and i pray lord that you will help us uh, go deeper into knowing what it is to be in christ and to have christ in us 
and to have communion with you. I pray, Lord, that as we live in union with Christ, it would drive away our fear and anxiety and give us more contentment and give us more hope and rest and trust in you. Lord, help us to know more of this gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone-u.